science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker and Liz Neely. And this week, we're presenting stories about being thankful. Oh, gratitude <laughs> is definitely one of my favorite emotions, Erin. <laughs> Do you have all of them ranked uh, on oh. a scale of one to ten? <laughs> no, no, because ranking, right, would require a list. And coming up with a list of what the human emotions are, surprisingly difficult challenge scientifically, <laughs> right? Like. I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about this. Like, are there six basic emotions or like 10 basic emotions? And uh, let me tell you, I've just been reading a piece by Cohen and Kelter, which, brace yourself, Aaron. Oh. Let, I want you to know, self-report captures 27 different categories of emotion bridged by continuous gradients. Wow. 27. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I am struggling a little bit to wrap my head around the math in this paper. The, the authors had to devise their own methods. So like if anybody who's listening can uh, talk to me about split half canonical correlations analysis, I'd be super grateful. Um, but really, it all boils down to emotional things are hard. No, just kidding. I mean, like um, emotions are hard and emotional states occupy a complex and high dimensional categorical space. Amazing. I've been feeling emotions for over 34 years and mm -hmm. I've never done a split half canonical correlations analysis on them. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> I feel so behind. <laughs> I feel like there's probably a reason that in addition to reading to present this paper in our workshops, I paired it with something a little bit more relatable, uh, which was Mr. Rogers. Always relatable. Yeah, I'm excited about this upcoming movie. But Fred Rogers, when he talks about gratitude, says, I believe that appreciation is a holy thing, that when we look for what's best in the person we happen to be with at the moment, we're participating in something sacred. And I feel like that's it. That's stories and storytelling right there. Absolutely. I was just going to say that that reminds me of how we feel in the audience at our shows. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. You ready for our first story today? Let's do it. Our first story is from Melanie Knight. It was recorded in October 2018 at Fox Cabaret in Vancouver. The theme of that night was Catalysts. I'm 16, and I'm sitting on a plane going from Cancun back home to Toronto. My mother and my twin sister and I just got bumped up to first class for the very first time, and we are super pumped. First class. So my mother and my twin sister sit together, and so instead I have to sit next to a, a kind, gentle old gentleman sitting there reading the New York Times. We're quiet at first, and when the hot towel comes, I start giggling with embarrassment and confusion. I'm like, what do I do with this? And he gives me this gentle little nudge of like, just just wipe your hands with it. I'm like, oh, thanks. And that breaks the ice. We talk the entire flight. 
he tells me about how he's a Wall Street investment banker and he lives in Connecticut. And I tell him about how I'm a high school student and I live in Elmira, like Mennonite town in Ontario. <laughs> he tells me about his time in the war. He tells me about his grandchildren. He tells me about how he went to Yale. He tells me about how he loves marching bands and <laughs> strangely, and, uh, and he tells me about, uh, about his life. And I tell him about mine. We couldn't stop talking and we just had this amazing quick connection like you sometimes get with strangers. And so at the end of the flight, I asked if I could get his email because I wanted to keep chatting. He's cool. And so he says, I don't have email. I'm an old school gent. But here, let me give you my phone number and address. And he writes it down on the back of the American Airlines, Airlines napkin. His name is Tom Fitzgerald. And he writes his name as the, the T, kind of uniquely, instead of a T, like you'd normally write a T, he added like a little hat on top, like a little triangle top and then the bottom line. So we become pen pals. He and I write each other regularly and sometimes we, we call. One time he actually sent me a, a package and in it was a VHS tape of a marching band concert. And one time he calls me and out of the blue, he offers to generously yet modestly contribute to my second post-secondary education. And I am amazed and confused. Tom, thank you so much for this generous offer, but we're okay. You know, I have a big family, but we're fine. You know, I hope I didn't give you the wrong impression that that's why we were chatting. No, Melanie, that's not it. I, I really believe in you and I also really enjoyed my university experience and I really want to make sure you get yours. So I talk with my parents about it. I'm like, should we accept this money? Like, oh my goodness. And generously and graciously we accept his offer and his secretary sends us the check. As soon as I get my acceptance letter to Memorial University of Newfoundland, I send him a copy of it and I send him a big fat thank you. And then I pack everything up and I moved to Newfoundland. At least I think I packed everything up. I did not pack the American Airlines napkin. So I call my mom and I ask her if she might have it. Well, in the meantime, she also had been packing up. She had moved everything up and moved as far west as she possibly could to, wet to, the, to the ocean, to the west coast of Vancouver Island. And she also didn't keep anything that was non-essential. So she did not have any of the letters and she too didn't have the napkin. And being a moronic teenager, I didn't write it down anywhere else because it was a keepsake. I was supposed to keep the napkin. <sighs> it stresses me out just thinking about it again. And so, okay, fine. So I Google him. He must be online somewhere. This man doesn't have email, but he must be online somewhere. And there are hundreds and hundreds of Tom Fitzgeralds in the... Connecticut area, and none of them that I recognize. So in my first year bio class, I think about him, and I'm like, God, how can I have been so stupid? In my year two genetics lab, I think about him, God, pit in my stomach, how could I have been so stupid? In my year three ichthyology class, he comes to mind again, and I just curse at myself. Every once in a while throughout my university career, I try again, I Google him again. I think of him constantly and I tell people the story. I wonder how I'm ever gonna get a hold of him again. In the meantime, what I should tell you is that in exchange for the contribution he gave me, what he did ask was for a invitation to my graduation. 
and my graduation is slowly approaching. I go one last time. I gotta see if I can find this guy. I go online, I search and search, and short of hiring a private investigator, <laughs> I can't find him. My graduation comes, and regrettably, it goes without Tom Fitzgerald there. And so does life. Life continues. I move from Newfoundland back to BC. I get a job at the Vancouver Aquarium. I get married. And I decide to move back to Newfoundland so that I can start the Petty Harbor Mini Aquarium, Canada's second catch and release aquarium. The aquarium's doing awesome. And second year comes by and I end up giving up my position as executive director to somebody local and I move back to Vancouver with my husband and I continue working and doing whatever. Four years go by and the Petty Harbor Mini Aquarium is celebrating its five-year anniversary. And my mother and I are going to be going to back to visit. And I think, you know what, this is the time. I call my mom and I'm like, Mom, we're going, I think this is the this is this is it. This is my chance. I might have even missed it. He might not even still be alive. I have to find Tom and invite him to the anniversary, because at least that's something. My mother knows how deeply impacted I've been by not being able to fulfill this commitment to him. So he says, she says, Mel, do it. <laughs> so instead of Googling Tom, I'm now Googling private investigator Connecticut. <laughs> there are three in Connecticut. All three of them claim that they can find your cheating spouse, but only one of them says that they can find a long-lost friend or loved one. So I call John, and I explain my incredibly strange request, and I tell him the very little amount of information that I know about Tom. I tell him he went to Yale. I tell him that he works on Wall Street, that he lives in Connecticut. He has grandchildren. He's older. I don't know. Super old? I don't know. By now, 16 years had passed. And I tell him that he likes marching bands. Does that help? I don't know. He asked me if I have a sample of his handwriting. And I say, no, I don't. But I do remember that he kind of wrote his T's a little weird. He adds a little hat to the top. He goes, send me a picture of that, and I'll see what I can do. Two weeks later, I get a call. Hello? Melanie? It's John. I found your Tom. How'd you find him? Well, I had to do some digging. I called a couple people who weren't your Tom, and now their wives are mad at them because they're not sure why some man is asking if they ever gave money to a young girl a couple years ago. <laughs> but I found your Tom, and we're sure of it. We sent your handwriting sample to his secretary, and she absolutely said, this, is, this must be you. He's going to call you in 10 minutes. Is that cool? Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay, so he's calling. So I hang up, and I'm like, okay, oh, my goodness. Is he mad at me? I can't believe I haven't, like, I, I was never able to give him the, in, the invitation that he wanted. Oh, my goodness. Is he mad at me? Is he wigged out that I hired a private investigator to find him? Like, what a strange situation. He must be so confused. Oh, okay, 10 minutes. 10 minutes on the dot. Tom Fitzgerald shows up on my phone. And I pick it up. I'm like, Hi, Tom. <laughs> it's Melanie Knight. <laughs> He's like, I know. Hello, Melanie. Nice to speak with you again. <sighs> oh, my goodness. I immediately apologize over and over again. I explain the whole story. I explain that I lost him, and that's why I had to hire this weird John guy to, to, to find him. 
And he says, Mel, you know what? I don't even remember giving you that money. I don't remember ever asking you to give me the, the invitation to your graduation in the first place. He's like, no big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal, Tom. It was. You made a big impact on my life, and I have been thinking about you for years. Please know that that was really important to me, and I thank you so much for it. And in the fact that I can't give you the invitation to my graduation anymore, I would really love it if you could potentially come to the five-year anniversary of this organization that I started because of my degree, because of how you supported me in getting that degree. He said, well, let me check my calendar. Let me check. Well, in June, eh? June. Let me see. And he, like, looks at his calendar for a second. He's like, to hell with it. I'm, I'll be there. <laughs> so on June 17th, 2017, Tom Fitzgerald is standing in the Petty Harbor Mini Aquarium with a party hat on and a sea star in his hand at 85 years old. He sits, he looks to his left, and there is a five-year-old girl who is also experiencing a sea star for the very first time in her life, and they totally smile at each other and have this cute bonding moment. That is the return on investment I wanted to show him. He finally got to see it. While he was there, he also had a couple other firsts. We got to show him his first iceberg. He got to see his first whale. Uh, he ate lobster. He met a fisherman with a peg leg. It was a great trip. <laughs> Tom and I now talk regularly, and we have plans to go see him in New York in the spring. And I can tell you that now I have Tom's full name, number, and address written down in many different places. <laughs> that was Melanie Knight. Melanie is the CEO and co-founder of Ocean to Eye Level Consulting, which helps coastal communities around the world open public marine education centers. Melanie is also the founder and past executive director of the Petty Harbor Mini Aquarium in Newfoundland. She graduated with degrees in biology and business, and for the past 10 years, she's been putting those to work, helping the largest and smallest aquariums in Canada foster curiosity for the underwater world. Melanie has given a TED Talk, is a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographic Society, she's received the Newfoundland and Labrador Environmental Award, and the Canadian Network of Environmental Educators Award, and she is featured in Tech Girls Portraits of Strength. Love that story. Uh, while we're on the topic of gratitude, I want to give a shout out to all of our Patreon donors. That is everyone who has signed up to make a monthly donation to us at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. We're so grateful for your support, and it helps us invest in things that make our shows more accessible, more diverse, and just overall better. So you can go to patreon.com slash thestorycollider to find out more. As we alluded to last week, we are relaunching our Patreon community this week to bring our supporters better monthly rewards. So our Patreon supporters now receive access to a bonus podcast feed where we're posting extra unaired stories as well as behind-the-scenes interviews and discussions. It's really fun and exciting, I have to say. Erin and I sat down to talk with Dr. Ali Matu, who is a board member and good friend, about stage fright and nerves in storytelling. And I've also started writing up little blog posts about the extra science tidbits behind the scenes as we're recording this podcast. 
Yeah, so check it out, patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Uh, it starts at $5 per month. You can sign up. And if you sign up this week starting on Giving Tuesday, that's Tuesday, December 2nd, you can receive an extra special gift. So our next story in this episode is from our show last year with Boise State, which is great because I just returned from this year's show with Boise State. <laughs> uh, it's always a magical trip to go out there to Boise and uh, hang out with our good friend, Dr. Eric Jankowski, and his engineering students and the other folks that he works with out there. We always come back with great stories and a lot of potato-based snacks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a win-win situation. That's right. So our next story today is from Joshua Adams Miller. It was recorded in November 2018 at Jack's Urban Meeting Place in Boise, Idaho. The show is presented in partnership with the Micron School of Material Science and Engineering at Boise State University. The theme that night was thermodynamics. It was a beautiful spring morning, and I was headed over to my girlfriend's mom's house for breakfast. And she had decided that we should make banana pancakes because our favorite makeout song was by Jack Johnson. And... I mean, we started cooking, and it was a little surreal. It was, it was a warm morning, beautiful spring. Everyone was getting up, getting ready for their day off. And my beautiful girlfriend and I were trying to tag team some flapjacks. And I mean, at my house, there was a legitimate anxiety anytime someone was cooking that the house was going to burn down. So I was, I, was, I was in a happy place. It was peaceful to me. And once we had finished our breakfast, her mom said that she had to do her math homework before she left, and I was, I admired that because my mom worked a lot, she was out of town, and so she didn't really know when I had assignments or not. And so uh, when, when her mom was asking her to do her homework, I was like, oh, well, that's, that is, that's nice, I guess. And when uh, she ended up getting a little impatient, though, because she was struggling with it. She asked her mom for help, and her mom was like, figure it out. And I knew that her mom was the dean of Boise State somewhere, and I was like, that's, that's crazy. I thought if you had a dean for a mom, you'd get math, math help, but I guess not. So, but I was, math was my best subject, so I sat down, and I started helping her, and as soon as her mom saw that, she came up to me and she asked me, she was like, are you gonna go to college? And I was like, probably not. Um, I know my family can't afford it, and I know my grades aren't good enough to get a scholarship. So I don't know. I don't really think it's in the cards for me. And she's like, well, do you know what the FAFSA is? I was like, no. She's like, well, it's a, it's a federal government program that helps you, gives you money for free to go to college. And I was like, really? Okay. And so she shut me down with the computer, and she showed me how to fill out the FAFSA. I was like pulling teeth trying to get my mom's social security number, but <laughs> uh, we got it done. I filled out an application and it was a little surreal. I mean, I feel like a door just opened and I was terrified. I, I mean, I hadn't really planned on it. I didn't know what college was like. I, I didn't have any sort of expectation and it was terrifying, but when when uh, what she didn't know was that I was a bad student 
because I rarely turned my assignments in on time. And when I did, it was because I finished them in class and snuck them in the pile of papers when the teacher wasn't looking. So there was that. And not too far after that, uh, I was at her dad's house. And I liked going to have dinner with her dad because her dad was an interesting man. He was a DNA expert. He worked with the, in the Innocence Project helping uh, wrongfully incriminated criminals get out using forensic DNA evidence. It's pretty amazing to me. And he also liked to ask these philosophical questions that made me think. There was one time he asked me, he was talking about the dimensions of the universe and he mentioned a hypothesis that, there, that we are just brains floating in space and that reality is just a simulation. And he asked me what I thought, and I was like, I don't know. I mean, I've seen The Matrix, <laughs> but like, I don't really know what to think. And he also asked me, he's like, well, are you gonna go to college? And I still wasn't sure. I mean, the money made me worried, and I was, I was something was sapping my confidence, and I wasn't sure what it, what it was. And in between his bites of his spring mix salad, he's like, well, I've been saving some money for some time, and I've been looking for an opportunity, something like this, and helping you get through college is something I might consider. And I was floored. I mean, how could someone be so generous? And I mean, what if I failed, it, you know? And it's hard enough to impress your girlfriend's dad without taking money from him, so, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, and I, I just, I didn't know what to say to that. You know, I, I have a lot of pride, and so I just, I, I thought about it, but I didn't give him an answer, and we just moved on. And uh, later on in the, in my senior year, my mom was out of town working, and she, I was at the house by myself. My girlfriend invited me over to stay the night, so I wouldn't have to be alone. And uh, it was a secret sleepover, though. Her mom didn't know about it. It was easy to sneak into her house. The stairs were right by the front door, and she was on the first floor in the back. And so I would just park down the street and wait until she fell asleep. And I would get the signal, and I'd come up. My girlfriend would crack the door and open it with a beautiful smile. And I mean, it was, it was great. This time, I was walking up the stairs. I got about four steps. Who are you? What the fuck are you doing? Get the fuck out! And I was terrified. Her mom's silhouette just had materialized out of nowhere, and I was frozen. I couldn't see her face, her eyes, but I could feel her burning holes through my chest. And I, I didn't know what to do. My girlfriend tried to say something, and I just, I just left, and I went home. I was alone, I was scared. I didn't know what had just happened to our relationship. I didn't know if I was gonna to go to jail. I didn't know if I was ever gonna to get to see her again. And I mean, I, I texted her and I didn't get any response. Not until the next day and she said, we can't see each other until you go and meet my parents. And it was, couple excruciatingly long days 
until her parents asked me to meet them at Blue Sky Bagel. And I was like, and I was like, okay. And I walk in, go to this shop, and it was business as usual. People were talking, enjoying their pastries, laughing. Pretty inappropriate for someone who felt like they was walking to their death. So I, I, I meet with them, and they, they, they ask me to order. And I'm like, all right, sweet, it's my last meal. <laughs> and we go outside, and we sit down on the patio. Her dad was sitting next to me. Her mom was sitting across from me. And I still shake from how nervous this makes me. But I was searching their face to see what was going to happen, because I didn't know. They were serious, but I didn't think they were angry. And so I just sat there and soaked in my guilt and waited for them to break the silence. And they asked me, what were you thinking? I didn't really have an answer. And they're like, you're 18 now. Her daughter's a sophomore in high school. There's serious consequences for what you were doing. And you can't ever do it again. And the only thing that I could think was, do I get to see her again? Not too much long, longer. I was sitting at the park with my girlfriend. And it was a beautiful spring day. I was holding her hand. I was very happy. It was nice. And, uh, but I knew that we needed to talk. Because I was graduating soon. She had two more years of high school. And I didn't want our relationship to be torn apart by trying to force something that wasn't going to work. And we broke up. I loved the fuck out of her. In between I love yous and my tears, it was, it was hard. The thought of college went away with the relationship. Soon after I graduated, moved out, moved in with a couple of my friends, and we partied a lot. Uh, we, we were smoking weed, we played video games. There was eight of us in four apartments, and there was only six apartments in this cul-de-sac. So we, we, had, our, we had our animal house. <laughs> but uh, it was unsatisfying for me. I mean, the year before, I was a successful athlete. I was a talented musician. I was an ASB CEO of my student council. And here we are, partying every day of the week. And I was making sandwiches in a Mediterranean restaurant. And it was, I felt like I needed to do something more. And my roommate started selling weed. And I made me uncomfortable, but I didn't really care. I mean, we all know weed's illegal for bullshit reasons. But, <laughs> and I figured as long as it's something that helps him succeed and do something more than just survive, then who am I to judge what's the worst that could happen? Well, there was one Wednesday that I came home from work and there was a bunch of cars in the parking lot and I was like, all right, another wasted Wednesday. That's what we dubbed our party Wednesdays. And uh, 
There was two girls walking up the door. Pizza guy was there. And I got out of my car to go let them in. And as soon as I grabbed the door to open it, I opened it about two inches and it slammed shut. And my roommate yells, go away. We're not having a party anymore. I was like, I live here. Let me in. You know, I was like, this jerk doesn't want to share his pizza. <laughs> and I still had the doorknob turned, so they couldn't lock me out. And I pushed again, got about an inch. And so this time I really tried and I forced my way in. And as soon as I got my head in the door, I was looking down the barrel of a nine millimeter pistol. I froze, stood up. I didn't know what to think. Do I grab the gun? Looks like he's waiting for me to do that. Is he gonna shoot me? What does he want? I look behind him. All my friends are sitting on the couch hostage. Once the tension starts to settle just a little bit, he demands my money, and I still didn't move, afraid that if I moved, I would do something that couldn't take back. And he waves the gun in my face, and he's like, get out of the door. And I move, and I step aside. He's like, sit down. I sit, and he runs out the door, gets in a black Mercedes, and drives away. After that day, I had a serious conversation with myself. I was like, I know I'm smart. I know people expected more of me. I expect more of myself. So, I decided that if I'm gonna be lost and struggling, I'm gonna be doing it trying to achieve something. Now, now here's the good part. I made a lot of mistakes, and I, I've spent a lot of time figuring out how to be a good student. And now, I'm this close to getting my degree in material science engineering. I work in the technology development for a company that made $30 billion last year. And, if there's any chance at all that I get to do what those people that impacted my life did for me, it's all gonna be worth it. Thanks. That was Joshua Adams Miller. Joshua was born in 1989 in Sun Valley, Idaho to a family that has been in Idaho since 1873. He grew up in southeast Boise under the care of his mother, who provided him more opportunities than anyone could ask for. Over his life, his curiosities have drawn him to the sciences repeatedly, but as we heard, by no means was it a clear path that brought him to his studies at Boise State as a material science engineering major. Like a sunrise slowly illuminating the horizon, he realized that the best way for him to contribute to the future he wants to see is to bring the world the materials that will make it possible. That's beautiful, Josh. Yeah. 
He's got surprising depth, that guy. I remember meeting him for the first time in Boise. He was kind of the class clown, like boisterous, joking around. Definitely not sure if he was into this whole storytelling thing <laughs> I was trying to convince him about. And then he came up with that. That It's beautiful. I hope you're doing well, Josh. Yeah, there was not a dry eye in the house when Josh told this story. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a science foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me and Aaron, as well as Armin Mortazavi and Kayla Glenn. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, Jen Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Fox Cabaret and Jack's Urban Meeting Place for hosting our shows. And to... Is it too meta to be thankful for thankfulness? (laughs) (laughs) Never. No, I love it. Uh, Seriously, though, we really do have a long list of people to thank. These people in particular who have taken a chance on us this year or been there when we were struggling. We want to say thanks to our moms and dads and to our husbands, Justin and Ed. And I want to give a personal and heartfelt thank you to Shale, Monica and Rachel, to Rose, Beck, Ashley, Maddie and Natalie, to Reka and to Siri, to Dietram, to Rakib and to Tracy. You've kept me going this year. I really want to thank the Story Collider Board for their support this year, as well as our producers and volunteers. And I also want to thank the New York storytelling community for all their support. I'm going to run through a few names real quick just now. Uh, I want to thank Matthew Dix of Speak Up, whose new novel is now out, Uh, Sam Dingman of Family Ghosts, Mark Pagan of Other Men Need Help, Asher Novak of the Speak Up Rise Up Festival, Brian Berlin of Love Hurts, Kevin Allison, Cindy Freeman, Brad Lawrence, and everyone at risk, Cambry Cruz uh, at the local venue QED, Drew Prohaska of The Artichoke, Tracy Zagara of Now You're Talking, Nestor Gomez and Angel Ling of 80 Minutes Around the World, Caitlin Brodnick and Sue Smith of Scamwell, as well as Sandy Marks, Gail Thomas, Jeff Zimmerman, and probably a whole bunch of other folks that I'm forgetting. Uh, Thank you so much to everyone in this community that has really supported us over the years. I also want to thank all of our friends at The Moth, as well as the science and storytelling communities throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and New Zealand who have supported us. And speaking of people who've been supportive, we're also really appreciative of the individuals who work at the foundations that make the Story Collider possible. So thank you, Samara and Anissa, to John, Jill, and Greg, and to Jeff and Tanya, Arna, and Kishore. Thank you all. I asked our producers what they're thankful for, and some of them, like Shane and Miriam in D.C., are thankful for each other. Uh, (laughs) It's a beautiful thing, the bond between two co-producers. You love to see it. (laughs) Uh, But most of all, they they say they are thankful for all of your stories. So I want to thank each and every person who has shared their story on a Story Collider stage this year, all 333 of you so far. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. 